Good morning. You got your Bibles? I hope you do. Um, Start turning to Leviticus chapter 16. We were there a little bit last week. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, the place where Bible reading plans last week we said go to die. Uh, Most of us have not made it through Leviticus um, for... For, for not good reasons. I love Leviticus, and I think one day we might teach through Leviticus in a, in a really intriguing way, because it's an interesting book. As you're turning there, let me say this, for those of you who aren't familiar with your Bible and what's going on in the Bible and in Leviticus and in this part of the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, the Bible was actually written in the first century to a first century people in a language that was extremely pictorial. Uh, The language of the Bible, especially the Hebrew language, is a very pictorial language, where in the West and in our culture and in our time, we prefer definitions, propositions, equations, lists, a very systematic order of things. Uh, In the Hebrew language in particular, in the language of of this time period, uh, it's, it's very pictorial, and they preferred pictures. In fact, the Hebrew language, particular words can actually be translated with different images, um, the one word might mean someone was waxed hot, connotating their frustration, their anger, what you could imagine about being boiling, boiling to such a point that you were, you were waxed hot. And so oftentimes we come to the Bible and we, we want God to lay particular things out in these systems and these lists and these propositions that we can take in in our brain, we can order out, we can measure our life against and we can go on. But God prefers very often, especially in the old language of the Old Testament, to give us pictures, to give us metaphors, to, to give us ideas that portray what it is he's trying to communicate. And, and last week, we began to look at one of these pictures, and this week, we're going to look at the second half of that picture, and then look at a few more to try to explain what God is doing in the gospel through an idea that's called expiation. Expiation. Big Bible word. Difficult theological word, not one that's a part of many people's vocabulary, but the idea of what God is showing us through it, what God is communicating to us through it about himself, about who we are, and about his value in Christ for us and for his glory is is unbelievable. So let me pray for us. We will begin to unpack some of these pictures and begin to hopefully get a new taste for some of the riches and the unsearchable riches that Paul says in the gospel, in particular this idea of expiation. So, Father, thank you for, again, this, this unspeakable privilege that we have to be brought together by you, to be spoken to by you through your word, to submit ourselves to you, and to be transformed by your spirit even as we listen, even as we read your words and Your words by your spirit are carried to our soul. We are transformed by the hearing of them through the work of your spirit. So we don't despise the time that we have together. We don't don't anticipate the end of a 30 or 40 minute time that we have together where we have to sit and listen to someone, but but we look forward to it and we anxiously await what your spirit does in our souls as we hear your word. And we ask that you transform us as we surrender ourselves to you for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of this city. We ask these things in the name of your precious son. Amen. Last week, we spent some time talking about this this sacrificial system that God put in place for his people in the Old Testament to deal with the realities of the sin that they were committing against God. And in a sense, this system that God had, had put in place for them was there communicating to them day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation, the seriousness of their sin and the magnitude of his holiness in their presence. Something was being burned into their collective conscience. Something was being branded into their soul as they would take these animals and take these sacrifices to the tabernacle, to the temple, and offer these things to God for the remission, for the removal, or the atonement, the covering over of their sin. Something was being communicated to them sealed in them, spoken to them by God through this act. And, and one of the things that I, I love about the feasts and about the sacrifices when you begin to study them and begin to learn about them is that the Hebrew calendar, their, their understanding of life, we've talked about this a lot because I really, I really dig this, but the Hebrew calendar and, and their cycle of life was built around these seven feasts, these seven celebrations. They started in the fall and they would carry throughout the, the end of the year and it would, it would culminate, end and begin with this idea or this feast of atonement, this, this time of atonement. Uh, what would happen is the, the people would come and, and for 10 days they would spend time in prayer. 
in soul-searching, many of them in fasting, contemplating and thinking about what they have done to grieve God. The attitudes, the behaviors, the practices, the things in their life that did not reflect his glory and did not conform to his law. And they would spend time thinking about their lives and how they had failed to honor God as God. And they would do that for 10 days. And on the 10th day, the day of Yom Kippur, the the first day of the new year for the the Hebrew people, they would come to the tabernacle or, or to the temple, depending upon what period of history. And they would come to the tabernacle or to the temple. And there would be this great celebration and this great practice and this sacrifice of atonement that would take place. And I won't explain too much of it because we did it last week. So I'll try not to re-preach last week for the sake of this week. But what would happen is the people would come and, and the high priest would, would take two goats and, and he would cast lot, a lot over these goats to determine which one would become the sacrifice and which one the sins of the people would be laid on and sent away into the wilderness. And we'll talk about that again in a minute. But he would cast lots for these goats, and he would take the first goat into the temple or into the tabernacle and sacrifice it, and he'd take the blood into the Holy of Holies, the place that only he could go only once a year after he had purified himself the way that God had ordained, that he could stand in his presence, and he could offer the sacrificial blood of this innocent victim in the place for the people's blood that was due to them for the sin they had committed against God. Because the wages of sin against an eternal and holy God were death. And God in his holiness and in his righteousness could not pass over or wink or ignore the sins of his people. And so God had ordained this process where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. And he would spill the blood of this sacrificial goat on the altar in the place of the people's bloods for the remission of the wrath of God against his people. And last week we talked about this as the, propitiation, the sacrifice of propitiation what that meant for them and what it meant for us when Paul says in Romans 3 that Jesus Christ has become the propitiation for God's people. And we spent some time talking about the idea that Jesus Christ has become for us that first sacrificial land, that sacrificial goat of atonement, that propitiating offering who has absorbed, who has exhausted the wrath of God and the judgment of God against sin. That the wages of sin were death, and a holy and righteous God could not pass over that sin. It deserved punishment, and it will be punished either by this offering on our behalf or by our life for all of eternity. And the problem that we face and the problem that God faces in the gospel is himself and is his holiness. And we spent time last week talking about how the wisdom of God made a way for the holiness and the justice of God to be satisfied by the love of God without contradicting any of his character or any of his attributes. And he did that in Jesus, as Jesus became the propitiation for our sins, exhausting the wrath of God in our place. And we talked about what that meant. The joy that should begin to spring up in our souls when we we realize that where there is forgiveness of sins, the writer of Hebrews said, there are no more sacrifices needed. That God is not looking for us to bring sacrifices to his altar anymore, waiting for us to do something so that he doesn't punish us. He has exhausted that in Jesus. I mean, if we could begin to get this in our souls and treasure this in our hearts, the difference it would make in our lives, but that was last week. I won't go back through that last week. This week, we'll we'll talk about the second goat. Nobody ever talks about the second goat, but I have really grown to love the second goat because the second goat, I think, is where the majority of people who've grown up in church or have grown up in the South in particular, in a very religious culture, in a culture with just enough Jesus and just enough gospel to really think they don't need him, and so that we can baptize people into a church and into an institution and into an organization without ever having them deal with God and with Christ and to recognize what God has done for them in Jesus, and so that we treasure the people and we treasure the institution, and the institution fails us, and so we do something else, and we find another place, we find another group, until we've exhausted ourselves of all the resources available to us, and we think that God just doesn't love us anymore, and it must have not really worked, because we failed to actually deal with Jesus. In the South, this is epidemic, and I grew up in the South, in Tennessee, and in the epicenter of it all in Nashville. And this is just the reality, and I think part of it is if we can begin to understand the second goat, if we begin to understand this, this other part of this offering, you see there, there were two goats in this offering on the Day of Atonement. And what happens is we tend to separate the first goat from the second goat. We deal with the first goat and talk about the first goat. We forget the second goat. But the two goats together constituted one offering. You couldn't have the offering of atonement, the covering over and the passing over of sin without both goats. 
if we were to do what we're going to talk about with this second goat without dealing with the wrath of God and the judgment of God on sin, God would be made a liar and the message of what he was doing in his holiness would be a joke. So the two goats constitute one offering and I think if we can begin to understand this second goat, I, I think it will begin to transform the way that we understand who we are and who God is and it speaks of one of the most unbelievable, unsearchable, treasurable riches of the gospel that I think we fail to grasp in our life on a daily basis. So we're going to talk for a few minutes about the second goat, and then we're going to look at a few more pictures throughout the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, that show us the realities of what was going on in this sacrifice. So what would happen? The high priest, he would take the first goat, the offering of propitiation, into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice it, and the blood would be spilled on the altar. And he would come back out, and he would take this second goat, this one that the lot had been cast against and the lot had fallen to him, what was often called or translated in some of your Bibles and the footnotes as the scapegoat. Azazel, some of your Bibles will say, most scholars will, will talk about this, referring to the realities of this idea that the goat was the one that would take something away. It would become the scapegoat. Some of your Bibles will actually say that, depends on your translation. We won't go into that. But he would come out and he would take this second goat, this goat that the lot had been cast against, and he would come up to this goat and there, he would place both of his hands on, on the head of this goat. And there was a way that he would do it. There was a, a method to what he would do. Um, scholars argue as to what that was. I don't really know how important that really is. And he would put his hands on the head of this goat and he would begin to confess the sins of the people. And what would begin to happen is that a picture was being portrayed and something was beginning to happen where that the sins of the people of God, the sins of Israel, the sins that you had spent 10 days wrestling through and coming to a realization of and confessing and drawing to light, this high priest would come and he would pray. And I don't know what he would say. I, I, I would love to know what he would say. There was a prayer that he would pray. Some think it's in Daniel 4, but I don't really know. And he would put his hands on this goat and he would begin to pray. And the sins of the people will be transferred to this goat. The sins of all of God's people for that year will be placed on this goat. And then what would happen is a, a man who had been set aside for this particular task would take this goat and he would walk this goat outside the gates of the city and he would set him free in the wilderness. Now, a tidbit for you. Most scholars, especially Jewish scholars, say that the man who was always appointed to take that goat out of the city was a Gentile which is really interesting when you read John chapter 19 and Jesus standing before Pilate and the people crying out for him to be taken away, taken away, taken away. And you find that a Roman, a Gentile, is actually the one that led Christ who would eventually become our scapegoat, our propitiation, our expiation outside of the city to his death. Interesting when you get into that, but that's neither here nor there right now. So a man in particular, let's say a Gentile, he would take this goat and he would walk it outside the, the, the gates of the city and he would set this goat free and this goat would find its own end and its own peril in whatever way God had determined. He would sometimes fall off a cliff, sometimes he'd be eaten by animals, sometimes he would starve. Uh, Jewish history says that sometimes at some point in the history of the people, they would actually take him to a cliff and kick him off. They would, you know, just to be sure that this goat did not show back up in their backyard, they would actually take this goat and throw him off a cliff because the worst thing you would ever want is to wake up the next day and for that goat to be in your backyard. I mean, the sins of all the people, your sins, the sins of an entire nation on this goat, and he shows up in your backyard. It's not what the people would have wanted. So what would happen is they would, the high priest would place the sins on this goat, and this goat would be led out, and this goat would, would suffer its ultimate demise. And what God was doing, what God was showing what God was saying through this process is that not only does my justice and my judgment and my wrath have to be satisfied for sin, but here's what I'll do. I will deal with my justice and my wrath with this propitiation, with this sacrifice of propitiation, but I've still got to deal with your sin. I still have to deal with the sin. Propitiation deals with the justice of God and the wrath of God. The second goat that constitutes the same offering. He's not separate. He's part of the same process. Now has to deal with the sin. And here's what God says he does. I will take this sin and I will take it away. I will carry it away. And the sins of the people were no longer in the presence of their God and the sins of the people were no longer in their presence. God would ordain a way that your sins and the sins of his people would be carried out of his presence and carried out of your presence to be remembered no more. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. God said, I will deal with my holiness and my justice and my judgment, and here's what I'll do. I will 
pass by your sins this year for something that's coming. This is what the sacrifices would do because you get into Hebrews like we did last week and we look at the fact that the sacrifices of bulls and goats could never constitute the forgiveness of sins. They in them could never bring the forgiveness of sins or the clearing of a conscience. But God had a plan that these were pointing to and when you begin to look at them, you see that even the way that we translate some of this stuff and the feasts of the people of Israel, that same word feast can be, can be translated rehearsals. So God had ordained something in the life of his people. Their calendar was built around these rehearsals, something that was preparing them for something that was to come. And as we saw last week, this picture of propitiation was preparing them for something that would come, a sacrifice that would come that would once for all take away the wrath of God and satisfy and exhaust the wrath of God in their place for those who would believe. The second half of this offering is a picture of rehearsal of what was to come in what Jesus did on the cross as he carried away the sins of the people from the presence of God to be remembered no more. We'll look at some other pictures in the Bible and let's see if this helps. Because I think if we were to actually get this, if this were actually to become a reality that sank into our souls, that God has dealt with our sin, and that it is no longer in his presence, it would change the way we understood who he was and who we were, how we lived and how we loved one another. So I think I'm going to come up here. Let's go Psalm 103 first. Psalm 103. As you read some of these stories, particularly this 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 aspect of the sacrifice of atonement and some of the things that God instituted for his people. Slow down when you read them. Slow down. Try to put yourself back in there. In fact, we're going to go back there and try to put ourselves in there in a little bit. But imagine, we read it with such ease. These people actually began to believe that it was possible for their sins to be placed on someone else or something else and carried away. They actually believed that it was possible for their sins, their sins, their personal transgressions, their falling short of the order, the will, and the glory of God could be placed on someone else and carried away to be remembered no more. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They actually believed this. And it actually began to change the way they understood who God was and how they lived. Look at Psalm 103. Verses 10 through 12, listen to this. Talking about God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is, from the West, probably most likely a cultural idiom or statement that was in some way meant to communicate an infinitely undescribable distance. Your mind can't get around how far it is from the East to the West. There's no markers on that one. They just keep going. The arrows on the end of the line just go all the way across the page. As far as the east is from the west, an infinitely undescribable distance is the distance that God has carried your sins away from his presence. Jesus not only bore your sins on the cross, he carried them away. He took them away from the presence of God and he took them away from you forever. Here's why I love this. And this begins to take shape and begins to take root. One of the things that this will begin to do is you'll begin to see that your sin, your idolatry, your failure to honor God as God in the everyday realities of your life cannot bar you from the presence of God. On the cross, Jesus Christ not only suffered the punishment and the wrath of God that was due to our sin in our place, he then, God said, has made a way for God to carry our sins as far as the east is from the west from the presence of God. Not just our sins in the past, our sins in the present, but the sins that we don't even know that we're going to do down the road. And what this means now is that we can enter in, the writer of Hebrews said, into the presence of God with confidence. We no longer have to 
step around on eggshells wondering what list God has in front of him right now, what things are fresh on God's mind. I'm aware of what I did. I'm aware of what I didn't do. What's God thinking? Is he paying attention to somebody else right now? Can I slip in the backside or should I come back tomorrow? We can actually enter into the presence of God with confidence to receive the grace that is abundantly ours in Jesus without fear of our sins, keeping us from his presence or killing us or condemning us when we stand before a holy God. Unbelievable if you can get this in your head. When you think about how you begin to approach God on a daily basis, how you begin to understand who he is and how you can begin to connect yourself to the realities of who he is every day and in every situation you find yourselves in. Listen, your sins, when you have put your hope and your faith in Christ for your forgiveness, cannot bar you from the presence of God. They can't. They will not. He has paid the price for those sins, and God has said, I've carried them and set them away as far as the east, and from, east is from the west. They're not even within reach. Unbelievable. Your sin can't bar you from access to the Father. And you can come with confidence into his presence. What would that mean for the way that you prayed? I mean, seriously. How guilty, how condemned how defiled, how frustrated and far away from God do you feel sometimes when, you, when your heart desires to connect with him and talk with him and commune with him and you begin to believe that because of your sin, you can't do it? And don't tell me you don't feel that way. I talk to you. I feel that way sometimes. And this is, the, oh, this is just one of the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful pieces of this idea of expiation, this idea of the scapegoat, this idea that God has not only punished Christ in our place, but he's made a way to carry our sins away from his presence. Look, there's more. That's just one picture. I love some of these things. What's the next one I've got? Isaiah 43, 25. This is a good one. Oh, my goodness. Isaiah 43, 25. This is God talking. I, I am he, not me, God. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Two things right here in Isaiah 43. Two things. One, God blots out your transgressions, blots out your sins. Again, pictures. These guys gave us pictures about what was happening in that time in the world that they lived in. It was customary for people who had uh, offenses kept on their behalf. They had a record with someone else, either a record of debt to someone or a record of violation against the law, whatever record was being kept of them to be written down. And what would happen when that debt, when that record, when that transgression was forgiven, they would literally, depending upon where in the culture or where in the world you were, they would either dip that thing in water and watch that record begin to fall away, or they would actually take something and wipe that record off that parchment, literally expunge it, literally blot out from your record the, the, the wrongdoing, the transgression, the debt that you actually owed. And here's what God says. He said, I have made a way to actually blot out, blot out your sin. It's gone. It's not there. The, the record is clean. In fact, it's actually thrown away. That parchment isn't just there clean. It's actually gone. God has actually blotted out your transgressions before him. I mean, do you, you've got to get this. You've got to get this. Part of it is hard for us because we minimize the reality of our sin in the presence of God. Because we've minimized what that is or we've defined it in a way that the Bible doesn't define it. And we spent time talking about that last week. I won't do it again. I'm tempted to. But when we misdefine the realities of sin and it's offense to a holy God, we misunderstand and we don't appreciate and we don't appropriate what he has done for us in Christ to be able to take away the sins against an eternal and holy God for all of eternity. He has actually made a way to expunge our record past, present, and future. What that means again, and you'll see it over and over and over again, is it is not sitting in front of God when he thinks about you. When God thinks about you, your record is not sitting in front of him. He is not Santa Claus. He does not have a list. Naughty and nice, naughty and nice, good and bad, good and bad. It's gone. Once for all, it has been taken care of in Christ, and he has expunged the record of your sin against him. He's not looking at you in that. 
It's not there. He blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And here's the best part. I will not remember your sins. Listen to the deliberate action of what God's saying here. You haven't earned something from God whereby you've done something that earns his forgetfulness on your behalf. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to wipe this record clean, and I'm not just going to forget what you've done. I'm not just going to forget it like I forget the keys or you forget a birthday or some of you forget an anniversary. I'm not just going to forget that this actually happened. I'm actually going to choose not to remember it anymore. Unbelievable. And do you know why it's unbelievable? Because it's not how we treat people. I mean, if you could get this and you could begin to understand that God has willfully and deliberately chosen to no longer remember the sins that you've committed against him. He didn't just forget them. They're going to pop up one day. They're not going to come up on a register when, when God types in a date somewhere. And, oh, look at that. Robert worshiped himself. They're gone. They're gone. And he willfully chooses not to remember them anymore. Unbelievable. He is not sitting up there waiting for you to do something so he can pull this thing out of his pocket. Say, ha, 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 ha. Look at that. Pattern. Pattern. Yeah, no more. Sorry, you can't come into my presence anymore. He's not waiting for you to do something that he can then look down at you and condemn you for. It's gone. It's gone. And if we could get this, if our hearts could just begin to treasure this, when we wake up in the morning, when our consciences and our souls begin to condemn us, when the devil begins to whisper into our ears and people in our lives begin to bring up things that we had done in the past and we begin to be reminded of who we think we are, if we could just, could just begin to remember, he's blotted them out. And he chooses to no longer remember these sins any longer. If we could begin to relate to God with that kind of reality, think about what it would do to the way that we actually related to one another. And think about it, married folk. If you could actually begin to love your husband or your wife in such a way that forgiveness actually meant you chose not to remember anymore, if you could actually love your friends in such a way that forgiveness and love really meant that you didn't remember anymore, you weren't waiting for them to do that same thing that disappointed you the last time so that you could look at them one day and show them again how they failed to do the thing you wanted them to do or they promised not to do that you forgave them for the last time but in your heart you were waiting for them to do it again so that you could remind them of what they actually did because you still hold this thing against them and a bitterness has grown up in your heart. If you could actually get this in your relationship to God, think about what it would do for the way that we could relate to one another. Think about if a, if a community of people a church, let's say, began to be changed by the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus in this one thing, this one idea of expiation, this one idea of carrying our sins away from his presence forever, if he could actually get us and we could actually begin to relate to him that way, then we began to work that out. We began to take that and work that out in the way that we served one another and loved one another, serve the people that we work with, the families that we're in, the schools that we go to, the jobs that we're in, the places where God has put us in this time in our life and work that out. People would not have an answer for that kind of life, that kind of love, that kind of service, that kind of relationship. And the question would come, you've got to tell me about the hope that you have in your life. You've, you've got to explain to me what's something. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And this is so hard for us to get. This idea that it's gone is so hard for us to get. I think it's so difficult because it is probably one of the hardest things for us to do with one another. It's one of the hardest things for us to do with one another. Sinfully, we, we want to hold something against people. We want to keep something tucked away in our back pocket. We really do not want forgiveness when it comes to our relationship with one another because that's a posture of humility. It's a posture of service. It's a willingness to not remember anymore. But it's the very thing that God has done for us. It's the very thing that an infinitely holy and eternal God has done for his creation who chose to forsake him 
and choose to serve what he has given them instead of him. And who continue on a day in and day out basis to wrestle with the realities of who he is and choose to serve themselves instead of him. This is what he's done. It's unbelievable. Well, let's keep going. What's the next one? I don't know what order I put them in. Psalm 130. Oh, yeah. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. If God actually kept a record of all of your sins, not just the things you did, but the attitudes in your heart and the motivations in your heart, and not just the overt things that we all want to say somebody shouldn't do, but the refined sins, the ones that we've gotten really good at in the church, the critical spirit, the gossip, the prayer chain, those things, if God actually kept a record of those transgressions, who would want to stand before him? Who could and who would want to? Oh my goodness, who would actually want to stand before an infinitely holy God if he actually kept a record of all the things that went on in our heart? If we actually put a video monitor on top of your head that played out all the things that were going on in your heart on a daily basis, would you want us to watch? I mean, would you want us to put it right up there on a Sunday morning and sit down with popcorn? Let's watch your day. And you wouldn't want us to do it. If God kept a record of those things, who would want to stand? Who'd want to stand before him? Who could? But with you, with you, with God, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. One of the ways it makes this such a difficult thing to grasp is it's a double-edged sword, actually, I think. God has given us this infinitely great gift called a conscience. It's an infinitely great gift. It reminds us of who he is, of his holiness. It reminds us of our transgressions against him. It reminds us of our sinfulness. When a conscience, or when a heart, let's say, has become characterized by sinful rebellion, self-righteousness, the Bible actually says that that conscience can become hardened. It can actually get hard. It can actually fail to be sensitive to the realities of who God is and, and the realities of our own sinfulness. But as a Christian begins to mature, as a Christian begins to, to take the realities of the gospel and, and accurately and passionately and intelligently apply them to their life and maturity begins to take shape, what actually begins to happen is the conscience actually gets softer and softer and softer and you become more and more aware, not just of the particular things that you do, that list of transgressions, but you actually become aware of your own sinfulness. You're not so overwhelmed, per se, by this particular thing, but you become aware of just how sinful you actually really are. And when you become aware of your sinfulness, here's the double-edged sword, you become more aware of God's holiness, and in the gospel as you mature, you become more aware of God's grace, but the other thing can happen, you can actually become more aware of your sinfulness, and you can begin to become laden with guilt, with condemnation, with shame, the enemy can take this reality and take this conscience and begin to define you and get you to define yourself by those particular things. But God says that with him, with him, there is, no, there is no record. And he gives us this unbelievable tool of a conscience to remember who he is so that we remember our sinfulness and our, our nature and our, our, our lostness, let's say, apart from him and without him, it drives us back to him. And we can remember the realities that with him, who could stand without him? But with him, with him there's forgiveness. With him there's forgiveness. Do you actually, do you actually think you're forgiven? Let me just ask you, do you actually think you're forgiven? There's an objective reality that has occurred in the past on the cross in Christ. There's a subjective reality that we actually experience, experience in that. Do you actually think that you're forgiven? Isaiah 38, 43, let's go there. Yeah, I did that one. 
You have 38 up there? There we go, 3817. Talking about King Hezekiah. I won't tell his story, but this is him talking. He said, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you, he's talking about God, have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all of my sins behind your back. God has taken all of your sins. He's blotted them out. He's wiped them away. He's carried them away as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't remember them anymore. And look at what King Hezekiah says. He has cast all of his sins, all of your sins, behind his back. God has deliberately chosen by his grace to take your sins and put them in the place where he does not look upon them anymore. Whether it's east to the west, whether it's blotted out of the record, whether it's behind his back, God has put them away from his gaze. And here's the thing. This is not how he sees you. I will say it like a broken record all morning because this is what the Bible is trying to say. There are many, many, many aspects of our faith in this country in particular that peddle on guilt and on shame. And the reality of it is we come into church more often than not and we approach the Bible more often than not trying to be reconciled to who we think we are when all along this is God saying, here is what I have done and here is how I see you. Why can't you just believe this? For those who, have called, who are called according to my purposes and who have given themselves to me and who believe that I am the one who has taken their punishment in their place and I am the one who has carried their sins away from my presence, why, why won't you just see this? So many times we peddle on, on guilt and we peddle on shame and we peddle on condemnation because we can make people dependent upon us or on, upon what we do or upon what we have. And here's what God said, I've done it all. It's behind my back, it's away from my presence, it's blotted out. And what we'll see in Micah, I've thrown it into the sea. I've thrown it into the depths to where I can't even, it's not even there. Listen, this is how I see you. This is what I have done. Why do you fail to see this? I, I, I'm just desperate in the days and weeks and months and years that come and, and go in the life of this church to do whatever I have to do, uh, whatever God would be pleased and willing to do through this church for it not to be a place that peddles on, on guilt and shame. And you begin to see the clear realities of what God has done in Christ for his glory that we would be transformed into his image. This is what he has done. He has taken your sins away from his presence. I'm not here to draw them back up in front of him. I'm not here to come back up with the list that that says, here's what we've done. Here's what the church has done. Here's what Chris has done. Here's what Ray's done. Here's what Greg's done. Look at all this. Here it is, God. Come on. Do something in our presence. Do something in the midst of us. What do I need to do? Do me sacrifice a goat for him? You you want me to to do something else? You want me to dance a jig or get a dog and pony show to come up here and, and make you happy? This is what he's done. This is what he has done. He has cast all of our sins behind his back, deliberately, willfully choosing to put them in the place where they are not in front of his face. You can come to him without fear that he is keeping a record of your sins in front of his face and looking at you through them. That is not what he is doing. It is not what he has done. The reality of it is we have to believe it. We either believe what he has said about who he is and what he has done, or we will continue to believe our guilty feelings. That's what it's going to come down to. Are you going to believe this, or are you going to believe your guilty feelings? I mean, when it really comes down to it, when I'm not here, when everybody else isn't here, when you're laying down at night, the lights are off, the sound's away, the kids are sleeping, the spouse is asleep, roommates are locked up in their rooms, whatever it may be, when you're laying down, here's what you've got to deal with. Do you believe this or do you believe the guilty feelings in your soul and in your mind that the enemy continues to draw up into your presence and into your face? I mean, here's the beauty of expiation. When these things begin to take root and everything gets really quiet, everything gets really quiet, and whatever it looks like for you, however you wrestle with this reality of of experiencing the truth that God has forgiven you of your sins and taken them away from his presence, and he is not drawing them back in front of his gaze when he thinks about you, whatever that looks like and however you wrestle with that, here's what you can get to. You can look at that, and you can hear that voice, and you can 
sense that feeling, whatever that is, in your gut, however it begins to bubble up in you, and you can, you can agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah. But I don't see any goats around here. I don't see any goats coming back around here. I, I, I'm pretty sure that goat has left the building, never to come back. Yeah, did that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that price has been paid. That justice satisfied. That sin blotted out. That goat taken away. That sin forgotten. That sin put behind his back. Micah, and this next one. That sin, that sin has been cast, or some of your Bibles will say hurled, into the depths of the sea. Think about that. And whatever picture grabs your mind, I don't know, I'll give you five or six of them this morning, because by God's grace, one of them will, will connect with you. God has taken your sin. He has taken your transgression, and he has hurled them. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about hurling something. I mean, I think passion, I think aggression, I think intention, I think purpose, I think there's a reason behind me grabbing whatever it is in my hand that I'm about to hurl at something else. God has taken your sin, and with that intention, with that determination, with that passion, he has hurled it into the sea. It is gone. Corey Timboom, one of the famous missionaries in the life of the church, in, in writing about Micah 7:19, she actually said that God hurled your sins in the depths of the sea, and then he hung up a no fishing sign. He hung up a no fishing sign. And she was intrinsically aware of just how tempting it is for us to go fishing for those things again. Just how tempting it is for us to cast a line back out into that sea and draw that sin and draw that guilt back up, to draw that condemnation back up, and just how easy it is for the enemy to cast into that sea and draw that thing back up and dangle it back in front of our eyes. She said, God has taken that thing and he has hurled it into the sea and he hung up a no fishing sign. It is not coming back. It is not coming back. It is not gonna be held in front of you, condemning you anymore, if you could just get that. I mean, if you could just get it. I mean, subjectively, by God's grace and by his spirit, if we could just get the reality that we have been forgiven and our sins do not sit in front of the presence of God anymore. They're not there. Listen to this. We'll end it this way. Let's go back to the Day of Atonement. Take yourself back. Leviticus chapter 16. Put yourself in the place of, of God's people. You've gathered, you've prayed, you've fasted, you've contemplated. You've kept a record of your sins, of your guilt, of your transgressions, and you've come together. And the priest has cast lots, and you've gathered around the tabernacle, or you've gathered around the temple. And you've come and he's cast lots and he's separated the goats and he's gone into the Holy of Holies and he's offered that first one as a sacrifice and he's sprinkled that blood on the altar and he's come back out. And now he takes this second goat and he puts his hands on it and he begins to pray and he begins to confess the sins of the people, your sins. You are watching your sins literally be transferred on something else. I mean, put yourself in that place. All that you know of who you are, all that you know of who God is, all of the hope that you have for being right in his presence at that time, you're watching them be transferred onto this goat. Then you watch that goat be taken away. And you literally watch your sins walk away. You literally watch them leave. They're gone. Do you know what happens on the back side of watching your sins walk away? It's not this. It's not this. You're all looking at me like something's going to pop up out of the floor. 
It's not this. When you recognize that your sins have been dealt with, and you watch those things literally walk away, what was at one time sorrow and repentance becomes joy and freedom. What was mourning has become gladness. What was fasting has become feasting. And the whole thing begins to transform. When you realize that your sins are gone, you won't just sit here like that. That's how I know it hasn't sat on you yet. You won't sit here like this. When you realize that they have walked away, never to be brought back to you again, and you don't have to do it again next week, you don't have to come back in here and me go through this again so that that will happen again like they had to do every single year, but on the cross, not only was it dealt with, it was taken away from the presence of God. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I mean, I, I'll just keep talking until you get it. I mean, they got a kitchen next door. Here's what had to happen for that to actually become a reality, though. The people, when they came, they would actually have to identify with the sins being placed on that goat. They would actually have to identify with the sinfulness being cast upon that goat and the need for that goat. They would actually have to recognize that it was their sin, their transgression before God that needed this kind of sacrifice and it was their sin that was being put on this goat. And here's what they had to do. They had to actually believe that it was taken away. They actually had to believe it was taken away. Objectively, those sins walked away on that goat. Objectively, your sin was carried away from the presence of God through Christ on that cross. The reality of it is you have to actually believe it. You actually have to believe it. The work has been done. The price has been paid. The sin has been dealt with. The hard work is actually done. Now you have to believe it. The people of Israel had to actually identify with the sins placed on that goat, and they had to actually believe that God had ordained a way for their sins to be carried away from his presence. Their faith was not in that goat. Their faith was in the God who ordained the sacrifice and the process that carried their sins away. When you begin to get this and the realities of repentance and confession become alive in your heart, it's no longer a process that focuses our gaze on ourselves and our sinfulness, but our hope and our faith, our trust and our joy become identifying with who we actually are and who God actually is and our faith gets put in who he is and Not this idea of him just carrying our sins away, but in the God who ordained the process and the wisdom to deal with what we couldn't deal with in and of ourselves, and our eyes are lifted off of ourselves and onto him, and the people in the first century, the people of ancient Israel, the people in Leviticus 16 would watch this thing happen and watch these sacrifices, and they would be amazed at how great God actually is, how unbelievably indefinable and indescribable God is year in after year that he would do this for them. There would be great joy. And as we begin to identify with our sinfulness and our need for him, we begin to confess our sins to him and actually believe, believe that he has actually dealt with them in Jesus The price is paid, the wrath is exhausted, and the sin is carried away. We actually believe that he has done that for us in Jesus. Great joy. Oh, my sinfulness is real, yes. Oh, my sinfulness is great in front of my eyes, but oh, the size of the cross and the grace and the message of the glory of God in comparison is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. No longer is my my life and my relationship with God seen through the lens of who I am as defined by my sin, but God sees me through who Jesus is and what he has done, and I can approach him with great confidence and great boldness, but we actually have to believe it. But here's how I'll pray. It's done. Objectively, historically, once for all, The judgment of God has been exhausted on Jesus and our sins have been carried away. You're left with the reality of are you going to believe it? Are you going to believe it? Objectively, it's done. Do you believe it? 
Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, for being so loving, so gracious, so merciful, so wise, so holy, so righteous that you would ordain a plan to reconcile a rebellious man like myself to a holy and righteous God as you are in such a way that you didn't compromise anything about your character or your nature that I might look to you and be overwhelmed by your grace and be overwhelmed by your holiness and be overwhelmed by your mercy and not be destroyed by it but be brought to you through it. That because of what you have done, my sins do not have to cause me to run away from you but run towards you. That you have carried my sin away as far as the east is from the west. And you do not look at me through those things any longer. God, I ask by your spirit that you make that real and alive in our hearts. It's one thing for us, God, to be very proficient at explaining the fact that you've forgiven us. It's another thing to live in that reality. My prayer for our church, my prayer for my life, my prayer for the families in this place, Lord, is that becomes a reality through which we live that we become a people who live with the confidence that you have forgiven us our sins. You have put them behind your back. You have hurled them into the depth of the sea. You are not keeping a record of wrong against us, but you have exhausted that when you placed it on your son and punished him in our place. God, let us live in the reality of that. Or may we do that, not that we would become anything unique or exclusive in and of ourselves or in a church, but we would be a people that live that way that you would be made much of. That our lives would reflect and point towards a graciousness that comes only from you. Lord, and we would, we would experience real joy, real life, the fullness of life through which you created us for. And we ask these things, Lord, in the name of your precious Son, who gave himself up on that cross in our place. Amen.